welcome to the Millennial Falcon, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. I'm Anya Crittenden, a writer at Gay Star News, and this week I am joined by my two co-hosts. I'm Hui Chen Bui, a writer for Slash Film and a pop culture journalist in D.C. And I'm Willoughby Dobbs, a filmmaker in the D.C. area. So today we're going to be talking about a, a story, a news story that uh, took over the, the Twitter sphere for a little bit. So this has to do with um, a biopic called Rub and Tug that was originally set to star Scarlett Johansson and be directed by Rupert Sanders. And it was a biopic about Dante Tex Gill, who was a real-life crime boss in 1970s Pittsburgh who ran a string of massage parlors that doubled as prostitution hubs. And Johansson was originally set to star as Dante Gill, but... the controversy immediately arose when people realized that Dante Gill identified as a man. So um, Dante Gill was a transgender man. And in this sense, Johansson would be playing a, char- a transgender character um, that would not be really sensitive or true to how the community would like to be depicted. And this is actually her second sort of controversy in terms of casting uh, because of her casting in Ghost in the Shell two years ago, also directed by Rupert Sanders, in which she and the film were accused of whitewashing. So we're going to talk a little bit about why this is a controversy, why it's harmful to uh, the transgender community to cast people who are not transgender in these roles, and what we should do about it, and what Hollywood should do about it, rather. So, um, After Scarlett Johansson was uh, cast in this and the uproar kind of started to grow, uh, she initially released a statement that said, um, tell them that they can be directed to Jeffrey Tambor, Jared Leto, and Felicity Huffman's rep for comment. And it was at best a dismissive uh, statement that basically was suggesting that other actors who played transgender characters, Jeffrey Tambor in Transparent, Jared Leto in Dallas Buyers Club, and Felicity Huffman in Trans America, and they all won or were nominated for awards for those roles, uh, made it basically okay for Scarlett Johansson to play this because you know she was gunning for – she's implying that she's gunning for a um, – awards buzz or it's it's something that's been done in Hollywood so why should this change but then after that really uh, dismissive statement was released uh, she a few days later she uh, released new statements saying that she was exiting the project and that she uh, has learned essentially from the controversy and the backlash to her casting so I wanted to yeah. open up the discussion, guys. And Anya, as someone who is like more deeply embedded in like the LGBT, embedded is a is a bad word. I'm sorry. It's like I know more deeply mean, involved yeah. in the LGBT community. Can you tell us why exactly this was a controversy in the first place? Yeah, yeah. Well, I do want to say that like this was this started very messy, and I do think that there are some journalists who could have done a better job in covering this in the beginning because the thing is the first report that came out about her casting came out of deadline and deadline used female pronouns to describe Dante Gill. If I can remember correctly, it misidentified her as a, or him, I'm sorry, it misidentified him as a cross-dressing woman. Yes. And so like, and then every other outlet started using female pronouns too. And so like at first it seemed 
for people who don't know Dante Gill, it was like, oh, was Dante Gill, did Dante Gill, like, identify as a woman and cross her as a man? And, like, people weren't sure. And so, like, at first it became this whole mess about, like, not doing research. And, like, even in my initial article, like, I wasn't sure. I avoided using pronouns, but I wasn't sure. And then, upon further digging and some talking with people in the community, um, we found an obituary for Dante Gill. Now, interestingly enough, the obituary also uses female pronouns, but mentions the fact that Dante preferred male pronouns and may have been looking into uh, gender confirmation surgery before his death. So at first there was just kind of like bad reporting in general on this story and journalists not doing enough research and um, using the wrong pronouns. And so it was kind of just a mess in general. And then once we we did our research, as we should always do, um, and we realized that Dante uh, identified as male and used male pronouns, it then became, like, even more explicitly clear that casting a cis woman, a straight cis woman, is was wrong. Because then there was a question of, like, oh, can Dante be played by, like, a butch queer woman mm. or like gender queer woman uh, um, can you also tell us what cisgender means for people who aren't aware yes um so cisgender basically means that you identify with the sex that you were born with um and so someone who is trans uh like dante dante was born biologically uh, as female but identified as a man was a man and so you know, should not be played by someone who is cis female, who identifies as female. Um, and so that's kind of where the whole thing came down. And it's also, you know, that thing about, like, a lack of roles for trans people in general and, like, telling a story authentically, which we'll get into. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's kind of what it all came down to. It's, you know, it's it's very similar to the idea of when she played the character in Ghost in the Shell, who was Asian. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that is not her identity. Her identity is not trans. Um, and the worst part of it in Ghost in the Shell was that they, they in the press circuit, they denied that this character was going to be depicted as Japanese as she was in the anime and in the manga. But then in the movie itself, they actually leaned into that whole whitewashing part. Have you guys seen Ghost in the Shell? No, mm-hmm. but you could spoil it. So um, spoilers for Ghost in the Shell. In the end, it's revealed that uh, so her character is essentially an android of sorts or a cyborg who is uh and the the original like soul of this cyborg it was actually from a japanese woman and they put it into a body of like scarlett johansson who is a a white female woman white woman so bad yeah and And i'm wondering if that was a cat if that if that's a script decision after she was cast Uh, i mean i i don't i can't believe that they would be that obtuse about it but i mean it's possible it's just i mean they seem pretty obtuse about everything they're doing rupert sanders and scarlett johansson Mm -hmm. that that is not a good combination of actor director no that's so bad but it is pretty bad it is good though that scarlett johansson did step away from this role Mm -hmm. yeah i will say the way she went about it was not great like even her statement announcing her stepping down was not a great statement. Um, I want to talk about um, Ed Scrine, who stepped down from Hellboy 
in a little bit because I think he's actually like the example to go by Mm -hmm. personally. But getting back to kind of like this movie specifically in this role and like why it's an issue is like some people like we're trying to compare it to straight actors playing queer characters, which as a queer woman, I don't think really holds up like that to me is not something that like, if you look at like um, love Simon or disobedience, recent queer movies that have come out that have been played by straight actors um, or primarily straight actors. And that to me feels different than trying to play someone who is trans um, or being a white woman playing an Asian character. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something, there is a, there's a difference, I believe. Yeah. In that. Um, and for me, it just, it has to do with, it has to do with authenticity. Um, it has to do with identity. It has to do with representation. It has to do with opportunity. Because the fact that there is a lack of opportunity for trans actors or for actors of color, and you're now taking away their roles and giving them to cis white people. You know, it's why there's not a problem to have a... Like... Okay. Trying to think of an example... Well, I can't relate specifically to um, the LGBT community uh, in terms of like the uh, straight white, pe- straight cisgender people playing transgender characters. But I kind of would draw the similarities to actors uh, in yellowface or in blackface, for example. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and that's where the line is. It's um, yellowface is actually something that's like o- until recently people have won Oscars for playing uh for like white caucasian actors playing like an asian character for example um uh who was it who um most recently uh uh, linda hunt who played billy kwan in the year of living dangerously so not only played a an asian man or an asian character but played a, a man as well and that was in 1982 and that is something that was like was ridiculous to me and it's it was a, such an obvious feat of like of yellow face in terms of just like the makeup and the way that they acted and that they cast a white woman in that role and th- i think that's where like it becomes really offensive because it's just like taking on like this this uh this burden of a this identity and making it into a costume essentially Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, um, so it's like the idea of, like, you know, Nick Fury in the Marvel comics in the main universe is white. Mm-hmm. And then they cast Samuel Jackson. Now, he is black in the Ultimate Universe, I believe. Yeah, they even it's like people after Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. But it's like people throwing a fit over that by saying, like, oh, why can't, like, a white person play this role if, like, a black person can play a role that was originally white? And this really does come down to systemic kind of oppression and opportunities and the way that our society is built. Like people think that, Oh, it's movies. It's not that important, but it all stems from this very larger discussion of the fact that 
black people, trans people, Asian people, queer people, disabled people. And now that marginalization is continuing into Hollywood. And it's just a, it's a symptom of the larger issue. And so a black person playing a role that might have been originally white is not a problem in the way that it's not a problem, period. Mm -hmm. Well, it's also like, it's like you were saying, there's a systemic sort of, um, like, not oppression, but like, uh, there's, there's this in, in Hollywood, there are fewer roles available for people of color, for minorities in general. And in this way, it's kind of leveling the playing field of allowing more people of color, more minorities to take on roles that are authentic to their own experiences. And it's not about shutting white people out of playing that role either. Um, it's, it's just like, it, it's kind of about evening the playing field, but it's also about like boosting, uh, actors who may be able to give a more authentic depiction of this uh like in pose for example uh how we have a majority transgender cast and majority lgbt cast and that's amazing and it's something that is is possible today because we have people who are supporting those actors and because and giving them the opportunities and um i think i really dislike the excuse that oh, a transgender actor or an actor of color cannot lead a, a film because there's no, you know, box office jaw for them. Like, it's, it's an excuse that holds no water because we've seen time and time and again when whitewashed movies like, like Ghost in the Shell, like Exodus, Gods and Kings, who feature white actors playing uh, col- col- roles Egyptians. for people of color, yeah, that they bomb more often than not. And those arguments never really hold yeah hold water they're they're never strong enough um there's also uh, there's also a really interesting um i think we should also talk about how like prob like uh i'm not gonna use the word problematic but like how dangerous it is to depict transgender characters with cisgender straight actors because uh there's this really great article on slash com. i did not write it but it was by danielle solzman who's also a transgender uh journalist and she um talked about how boys don't cry and hillary swank's uh, depiction of this transgender male character uh kind of led kind of fed into the stigma against transgender people uh that they're just like a man or a woman who are uh, f- masquerading as another gender, and that's not the case at all. And um, I like you were saying, Anya, like how it's just it's just movies, it's just Hollywood. Why is it important? Like this thing, it it is important because it spreads this depiction of a certain community that can you know lead to actions or lead to uh, discrimination against real life people, and that's important. Yeah. So I want to like. We're going to get real this episode. I mean, we have been this whole time, mm-hmm. but I'm going to throw some numbers at you guys that are alarming and they're real and it's something to consider because, you know, like we, we obviously on this podcast, we love media and we see the importance in media in representation in the idea of being able to tell diverse stories to people who may not be familiar with them from where they're from or anything. So, I just want to tell you guys, so last year was the deadliest year on record for LGBTQ people in the United States. It was an 86% increase of violence from 2016. And uh, 
uh, an organization funded 52 LGBTQ murders in all of 2017. Um, and these were reported. There are some probably that we don't know of. And trans people face a disproportionate amount of this violence, especially trans women of color. So, I think that this does have real-world consequences. We see the discrimination and the violence that trans people face, and I believe that telling their story, their stories, the varied stories that they have, is important because it will lead to more conversations and more of them being able to say, you know, we're here and we are like you and we just want to be accepted and live our lives and go after our dreams. And that's why when you have something like Pose, why it's so powerful, because it's being played by trans actors, written by trans actors Mm -hmm. or trans writers, and it feels authentic and it feels compassionate because it is because they're the ones telling their stories and I think there are going to be real world consequences from something like that or if you have the opposite movies or media that like reinforces stereotypes about trans people or Asian people it will lead audiences to see that and think that it's okay to keep stereotyping them and to keep discriminating against them so I think this is very important. I agree with you completely, Anya. Um, And I also think that it could even have like a policy um, impact as well. Because do you remember that uh, the the sort of conversation that was happening around gender neutral bathrooms? uh, Yes, Mm -hmm. and like still happening and still happening. And like I remember when we were covering it, there was there were there there are a few congressmen who were saying, "Oh, but what about?" our children and what if we have like a a young a young boy in a in a men's bathroom and oh no sorry a young girl in a in a girl's bathroom and you have a man who pretends to be a woman going into that bathroom and they're going to like rape our children and stuff like that and that's the the um perception that people have of transgender people that they're like a man a man who's like dressing up as a woman to like who can who who is a danger to our children and that kind of thing but in fact they're often the the victims more more often of uh, sexual assault or sexual um harassment and that sort of thing and it's it's just it's a horrible stigma that really uh you can boil down to a lot in to media and to hollywood and to movies and this is i think this conversation around rub and tug, it could be a turning point, I think. Even though it's, it's so. about a... I mean, the movie itself, it's just it's about a, a, a Chicago crime boss who, ran, who runs a string of prostitution uh, hubs, so I'm not sure like how um, good of a depiction it would be, but it would still be an authentic depiction if Scarlett Johansson and Rupert Sanders were to boost a transgender actor. And hopefully trans writers mm-hmm. in the room, too which would be important. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and so I think I think you're right. I think this could be a turning point well with like this and Pose. And I think when you also put it together with like the controversy around Ghost in the Shell or Emma Stone and Aloha mm-hmm. or Ed Skrein leaving Hellboy. Yeah. Like I think all of these things, you know, as, as painful as they are, as obtuse as some of these people are, as frustrating as it is that we're still fighting this when it seems so obvious that we shouldn't be, mm-hmm. 
I have to hope that this will kind of push things forward. And I hope that we can educate people too, because I know when I was, when I was like writing up these stories, a lot of people were confused, like, what does cisgender mean? Like, why is this a problem? And I hope that like, just because that this discussion was started, that people can learn why it is a problem and why the stigma needs to be erased, essentially. Yes. Yes. And I think it's also important to, you know, I am I'm part of the LGBTQ community, but I do not identify as trans. I am a cis woman. Um, and so I want to fight for more trans representation. But I also recognize that in the end, like, my opinion on this doesn't actually matter. Like, if trans people are saying this is a problem and that their stories are not being told authentically and like, they're the voices we need to listen to. Mm-hmm. And we should be amplifying their voices. And that's another reason why it's a problem to cast someone like Scarlett Johansson is because then we are ignoring those voices and shutting them down and amplifying someone else's voice instead. That is not authentic. So, yeah. yeah. Willoughby, I think you were going to say something. We've sort of been steamrolling you a bit. Yeah, I'm very sorry. No, it's, I mean, it's it's fine. I, I mean, you guys are making all the points that I would be saying just a lot better. Um, <laughs> so, like, I don't want to repeat any, anything that's been said except that, you know, just to, like, say that all of this is very important and representation. Representation in media matters because if, you know, if you if you see, yeah, like, if you see it on screen, people will be like, oh, that's okay. And so, like, the fact that, yeah, Jeffrey Tambor was, you know, is, is a man playing a trans woman – it, that's still like not great bob like that's still like and, and he said in his i'm he's very problematic but he said in one he of is. his speeches in one of his speeches speeches that he hopes that he is one of the last cis actors to play a trans role but that it's still not happened so like he is like grateful for the awards and the acting that he's done but also like look looks forward to the future and it's just like a weird transitional period between like Hollywood thinking it's okay and not think, and and now like learning more and more that like like coming up with the brilliant idea that people should be represented and I say brilliant because it should be pretty standard that it's represented like that people are represented in their own like you know see themselves on screen we always talk about how representation is very very important and it's important for all every single demographic to be represented on authentically on screen and if including a mob boss who runs brothels. Like if the, if the mob boss who runs brothels is a trans man, the actor should be a trans man. Uh, so it's just yep. one of those like, you know, situations where Hollywood just is behind the times. And yeah. And I not- think, I think you bring up a good point with like Jeffrey Tambor. Cause it gets, gets the idea of like Scott Johansson statements and stuff. And the fact that like, we're still letting like these people like, defend their roles or justify their roles or like try and seem like allies Cause, like when jeffrey tambor made that comment in his acceptance speech it was like yeah but then you're like wait if you yeah. recognize this why yeah. did you accept the role in the first place yeah it's one of those weird things where like people are like i i, I honestly how does hollywood casting work do people just be like oh oh i shouldn't have done that like, how does that happen? Like, months go into pre-production. It's so buck wild. I mean, it's clearly prepared. Like, these are statements by publicists and agents to be like, I have learned mm-hmm. my mistake. It's like, yeah. no, you should have seen this coming. It's, and I think this can't... is, yeah, and I think it's also a good lesson in kind of how to be an ally. Mm-hmm. I look at someone like Jessica Chastain, 
who I think is setting a good example of how to be a good ally. Um, not the same exact scenario, but, you know, she's doing a movie with Octavia Spencer, and she basically said, like, we have to be paid the same. Mm-hmm. And there's a chance that they could cut Jessica Chastain's salary if she wants it to be equal, because they're going to give Octavia Spencer a lower salary. But being a good ally means, like, take like accepting that right. and standing by someone's side. So, like, Jessica Chastain is not being like, oh, well, you know, like, we should be getting paid the same, and hopefully in the future we will be. Mm-hmm. She's right. saying, She's like, like, demanding no. it. Like, no, I won't do this unless we're paid the same. And if I have to take a cut, I will. Whereas, like, Jeffrey Tambor is, like, talking the talk, trying to. But, but he's not walking the walk. Not walking the no. walk. Well, he's walked now. Yeah, he's, he's walked. <laughs> Good. Um, Thank goodness. He's been fired. Uh, so, yeah. But I just, you know, I, you guys say everything a lot better than I do. So I'm not going to overstep boundaries and stuff. But I just think that, you know, it's all... It's it's to, like Anya said at the beginning. It's it was this whole casting controversy has been a mess, and it's just so like terrible that it's like the same. It's like a repeat offense, like double like twice over. Like just like they're like Rupert Sanders and Scarlett Johansson's like, ooh, let's push the boundary. Let's cast you as people that you're not. And she's like, great. And then people are like, no. And she's and like, no, we'll still do it. And then and then they do it again. The and she's like, ah. yep. she's like, I don't think I can do this now. Mm-hmm. Fuck. Yeah, and, like, you know it's all because, like, in her statement when she decided to leave the project, she was like, I would have loved the opportunity to bring Dante's story and transition to life. Mm-hmm. And it's like, or you, you wanted an Oscar. But you can also still do that, Scarlett, because you are a producer on this film producer. and you can boost the trans actor in this role. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's the part that kind of baffles me is that, like, if if it is important to bring Dante's story and transition to life, wouldn't you want to do justice by that story and mm-hmm. tell it authentically? And if you're a producer, you can make that decision and make that call. She wants that little gold man in her room. What do you guys? What do you guys want to bet that Marvel had a say in this after the controversy erupted? Oh, like you know, if you want a Black Widow yeah. solo movie. Yeah, like you mentioned, and I think Willoughby is thinking along the same lines, they just announced the director for Black Widow. And I bet you this was also probably, like, damage control. Because, like, Marvel doesn't want Black Widow overshadowed by this controversy. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't right. want to have, like, Black Widow come with baggage. Well, the thing is, like, the Black Widow movie already has, like, baggage. Because it's, like, everyone's been clamoring for one for ten years now. Or at least since she showed up on screen in Iron Man 2. Like, people have been wanting a Black Widow movie. And they've always always been like, ah, we'll give, give it time. Give it time. Um, and now they're like, uh, I guess we should do this. But we, oh, shit, she's in a controversy again. Ah, shit. <laughs> yeah. And exactly. it also, like, I think this provides a, or prompts a really important discussion about intersectionality um, which we can get into so Scarlett Johansson attends the women's marches and she gives speeches about feminism and when reporters ask her offensive questions about her diet and the costume she wears as Black Widow which are completely wrong and should not be asked like she calls them out on it but it's clear that this feminism she has extends only to, like, cis white women. Mm -hmm. And being an intersectional feminist basically means that 
you are a feminist and a supporter for all women, and you will champion their causes too, women of color, trans women, disabled women, and that your feminism extends to them um, and recognizes their different experiences and your own privilege as a cis white woman. But she's not really showing intersectional feminism. Mm -hmm. Her feminism stops short of women of color, like in Ghost in the Shell, or the trans community, like in Robin Tug. It's very sectional instead of intersectional. (laughs) It is. Exactly. It is. Um, I took a sociology 101 class. (laughs) (laughs) Very important. So what do you guys hope for the future? Uh, What do you guys hope for future movies or TV shows depicting trans actors? Or trans characters, I'm sorry. To be authentic. Yeah, I think that's, to be that's kind, of, kind of like the base the base level there. Yeah, and I think it's important to have trans representation both above and below the line. Mm-hmm. Which is why it's so important in Pose that you have trans actors, but you also have trans writers. Because if you have trans actors, but you only have cis writers, your script isn't going to be authentic. And so it really is like a full package sort of thing. And the whole industry and every facet of the industry needs to be addressed. It's not just what people can see on screen, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, And so, you know, and I hope I was, there was a story the other day, one of the trans actors from Pose, India Moore, she just got a new project that she's doing. And it's someone tweeted, like, this is what happens when you, like, let them have a foot in the door, like, give them an opportunity, like this is what's going to happen is like we give people opportunities. We can see the great stories they can tell and it will lead to more diversity, more creative storytelling, more authentic stories, more representation. And so, you know, it's just old white men in Hollywood are threatened and they don't (laughs) want to give up their, their power. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I I would have been head of the studio executive for 70 years. I think that's a good way to wrap up our episode on uh, representation and authentic storytelling and casting. So let's move on to the last segment of our episode. I really, 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 really like you. But I need to tell you something. So, Anya, why don't you start us off? What do you really like this week? So mine is more of a really miss, but also really like... So I don't really know how it happened, but somehow I started thinking about Doctor Who this week. And so I went back and I watched some of my favorite episodes from the first four seasons of Doctor Who when Russell T. Davies was showrunner and not terrible Stephen Moffat. And I just miss good Doctor Who. I just miss that fun, campy show about the beauty of humanity and exploration and how wonderful the universe is and and how everyone in the universe is british apparently yeah yes everyone is british that's my favorite part of doctor who is that the aliens who speak english are also british all right and i know moffat is horrible but i will say something in defense for season five because it's my Let's favorite season and it's just a, it's just a nice peter pan parable Stephen moffat isn't completely moffating yet it's just it's it's a nicely written 
except for the ending where it gets like the classic Moffat convoluted part. But it, I like, I like it that is season. The least it, convoluted se- season finale for him. It is yes. least convoluted. Yeah, of his. It's it's yeah because he wasn't really like fully into his own yet, and mm-hmm. so he he wasn't didn't have so the far up his own ass. To me- mess it up. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the sexism and misogyny start in season five yeah. with the way he treats Amy yeah. um, and River Song. I would also say that Eleven is probably Miley's favorite doctor because of the way Moffat writes him, because he writes Eleven in this very cold, apapathetic way. Um, I like but I think that's okay. I like I, yeah, I know. I, I just like him because he's like this sort of childlike god in a way, but it is, is not able to really empathize with humans and that's what, I think, that's where it gets like it's it's like that that conflict and he's trying i think but i, like I can see that matt it's smith. very cold yeah i like matt smith's perso- performance i think he gives a like even though the writing is not great i think that he gives it his all mm-hmm. and I, i'm just shaking her head but i know damn it, i agree I love too. david tennant too no, but, matt but, smith but, is great but no one beats christopher eccleston or david tennant all right well, yeah they are I mean, definitive yeah. doctors. But yeah, I have like, a soft I, spot for Matt Smith. He's my, he's let me my tell, boy. Tell you, let me tell you. Uh, so the, the, the final doctor, the, the final, the season finale for Matt Smith coincided at the same year that I graduated from college. And so I, those are linked to like my, the same emotion. So like if, whenever I watch the final season, the final, that final moment where he regenerates also like, is linked to like my senior year in college in which I like also like became like a different person because I graduated. So like the, like it's all intertwined with like emotion. And so I can't separate it, but also I understand that Moffat's terrible. But, I get that. But, but, but Matt Smith is so good. I get that. And Matt Smith is good, but I just don't like 11. I get like that Matt too, Smith is great, 11. but 11 I have a problem with because of the way Moffat writes him because Moffat is so up his own butt about his great plots and the way he treats female characters. We should do a and Doctor Who episode, by the way. We should. <laughs> I want to do this because, like, Moffat is so That's devoid. Good to get into it. He's so devoid of human emotion and, like, the idea of having fun and, like, having an Sherlock adventure. Sucks as well. So basically, I really like Russell T. Davies' Doctor Who. I miss it. Um, I revisited some of it this week, and I just, man. The first four seasons of Doctor Who, they are they're good stuff. They're quality, friends. They're quality. That's all. That's good. I agree with you there. <laughs> we will we will revisit this in a future episode. Yeah, we'll have another longer discussion about or, Doctor Who, in anticipation or, of the first female Doctor too. Or it'll take place place in the past. <laughs> Wibbly wobbly. Oh shit! I haven't heard. I haven't heard the phrase wibbly wobbly in like I know, we used to be obsessed with it. Oh, man. I still have my Doctor Who t-shirt, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. pictures of me in front of a TARDIS. I still have my uh, 10th Doctor's uh, screwdriver. Me, I have my 11th Doctor's screwdriver. Yeah, that I got you for your birthday. Yeah. I saw pictures of me cosplaying as Rose at a Doctor Who convention. Oh. Yeah, we were... Yeah, so, like, <laughs> we're, we're, we were all in deep for a while. Yeah. Oh, I was in so deep. Yeah, we were. This is why we need to do an episode on this. We should. We should do that. All right. Yeah, in anticipation yeah. of the future just, or the past, guys. Do we have to watch all of Peter Capaldi's? Because I've kind of missed those. I might watch it. It's pretty short. 
it's like 10 episodes. I watched episodes. the first two seasons. I've heard, again, I've heard Peter Capaldi is great, but I'm like, ugh, I don't want to see how Moffat ruins you. Ooh. Yeah. And we'll Clara. see. This is for the future past episode Millennial Falcon. Yeah, yeah. It's gonna, it's, we're going to get into some weird time travel shit. I yeah. love it. Let's, I love it. Let's finish this episode first. Okay. Willoughby. Well, has what's... it already been finished? <laughs> Willoughby, what's your really like for this week? The year was 1968. The movie, 2001, A Space Odyssey. The film, 70 millimeters. That's what I saw in theaters this Wednesday, was the 70mm, quote, unrestored version of 2001 A Space Odyssey that is, like, the most uh, uh, similar version to the print that was, that was like, distributed amongst everybody when it came out in 1968. Um, it was playing at the AFI Silver Theater um, here in Silver Spring. The uh, 2001 unrestored version has been a like a pet project of Christopher Nolan that he debuted at Cannes um, in the, in May uh, on the anniversary of the first uh, of the release of 2001 in 1968. It's been 50 years. Um, fun fact, the world premiere of 2001 A Space Odyssey was at the Uptown Theater in Washington, D.C., in that huge 800-seat uh, theater. Um, and I wish I wish they were airing it there because that would have been a, a theater to see it in. But I saw it at the AFI Silver in their seventy millimeter theater. It was so good, guys. It was so good. I have always wanted to see two thousand one in theaters. Like even if it was going to be like a digital, I still wanted to see it because like that's a movie meant to be seen on the big screen. Like it's just so pure visual. It's like there's hardly any. I would you can count the dialogue like probably on three pages um because and it's so good and the dawn of man sequence was so beautiful and like the people in apes costumes were just like running around like the sound design was so good all the space stuff was really well done uh i mean it's stanley kubrick like doing his like best work as like visually as well as like like composing like a great film that is not dialogue heavy um which he's done in the past. He's done some really dialogue-heavy movies. Um, and I really liked the way that, like, it just worked as, like, a big screen experience. And I'm so glad I got the opportunity to, like, like go see it in theaters. Uh, it was really fun. Um, and That's also, awesome. I, should, I should say that um, at the Smithsonian, uh, they had the, an exhibit of a full recreation of the hotel scene and the penultimate epi- uh, scene of the movie, like where he's like seeing himself age and like the monolith is there. It wasn't there in the uh, room at the Smithsonian. It was like this full like lit room, like uh, under lit room. But you can see there's like pictures of me on my social media of like me in the room with it. It was really weird. And then to see that on screen was like, oh shit. Um, uh, and I was like really excited to do both of those exhibits because it's been the 50 year anniversary. So like they're doing a bunch of fun stuff in DC because um, 2001 is such a good movie. Awesome. And also, guys, it's always wonderful to see a a future, re- like a realized future in a movie in, in which Pan Am is still a company. <laughs> <laughs> like Blade, That's both Blade funny. Runner and both Blade Runner and. Uh, um, 2001 have Pan Am as like the primary like airplane company. I'm like, oh man, you guys are gonna be so bummed out. <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't seen 2001 yet, so I'm in, very sorry. At all? 
at all. I haven't seen oh. it. I need to watch Spoiler it. Spoiler alert. I was... Spoiler alert. Things happen in the movie. Things happen. It's, it's pretty good. Will it be... What? Sorry, what, what was that? What was that? Is it your favorite Kubrick film? Oh. I would venture to say yes. I'm trying to think of other Kubrick movies. I have not seen The Shining. I also don't want to see The Shining because it's is... horrible. Yeah, actually, the I Shining like is Shining. good, though. Yeah. Uh, the, I, I really like Full Metal Jacket. Uh, oh, the other one, the one where uh, Malcolm McDowell plays a rapist. Uh, a Clockwork Orange. A Clockwork Orange. See, you haven't uh, even mentioned my favorite Kubrick. Is it Doctor Strangelove? It is. I could see you oh, liking Doctor Strangelove. That's on Hulu. That that's on Hulu, and it's on my like list to watch movies. Oh, you uh, haven't seen Doctor Strangelove? No, I haven't seen Doctor Strangelove. Oh, it's so I, good! It's I, my I favorite like Kubrick. It. Um, and I haven't seen like his later stuff, like the Eyes Wide Shut or the, I haven't seen the that half, one either. That, the half of AI that he directed. Speaking um, of Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. <laughs> oh yeah, we had a thorough so, discussion of Tom Cruise before this episode started. Just so you guys know. Yeah. Yeah, we did. A preview um, for our next episode, by the preview. way. Yeah. Um. Bum 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 Uh. So there's that. Um. But yeah, 2001 is what I'm really liking. All right. Yay! So my really like this week is one of the what I think is the be- one of the best movies of the year, uh, Leave No Trace. So it's Never a movie. Heard of- it's it just came out. Well, it came out a few weeks ago, but it's directed by Deborah Granick, who directed Winter's Bone, and it stars Ben Foster as this uh, uh, war veteran, army veteran, who is basically like living in the park, homeless, and raising his daughter with him there who's about like a preteen daughter and just them kind of surviving and living on their own and apart from society as he deals with like trauma and PTSD from his time in the army and it's this really beautiful quiet and melancholic film about just kind of shouldering the burdens of both your parents and having to deal with um you know it's a it's a family drama that is about just kind of sharing trauma between the two of you and also realizing when not to take on those traumas as well and it's it's really gorgeous and um really moving and stirring and something that made me a little bit angry because Deborah Granick has not made a movie since Winter's Bone and if she was a man <laughs> she would have had tons of work lined up and she it's probably amazing would have to than a blockbuster by now. Yeah, and it's amazing to me that both the two of my favorite movies of this year are directed by women who would definitely who already had such great movies and would should be at the top of like the auteur list. The other ones you were never really here directed by Lynn Ramsey. And it's just it's a really great year for female directors by the way. So I really recommend Leave No Trace. It's a really quiet uh profound drama that is something that will sit with you for a while. And Ben Foster Always amazing. One of my favorite character actors now and always underrated. So He was so good in Hell or High Water. He's so good in that. And he's definitely very he's very it's a big one eighty for his character here, so but I, I really like what he did in this film. And the um the actress, the young girl, was pretty good too. I don't know her name, but uh Thomason McKenzie, who sounds familiar. Um, Do you guys remember last year when we did our our, uh, Women Who Should Be Wonderful Directors mm -hmm. right before we did Wonder Woman? Um, I think think we solved the issue in Hollywood because there's so many great Hollywood directors now. There are. Yeah, we did it. We did it. Just kidding. kidding. 
They've been here all along. We shine a light with our amazing podcast. Yes. It's thanks to the Millennial Falcon that we have a great array of female directors this year. Maybe female directors are the friends we made along the way. (laughs) Guys, I had a joke, but I'll save it for next week. I'll tell you guys off air. Okay. It's about Mission Impossible. Okay. Yeah, save it for next week. Save it for next week. Um, All right. Well, that is our episode. Um, Kind of got off a weird tangent at the end, but... Um, If you guys have any thoughts on representation in films or to the one of Space Odyssey or Leave No Trace or Doctor Who, definitely come chat with us. And where can they do that, Willoughby? You can find us on Facebook if you search for us there. We're also on Twitter at Falcon Podcast. Uh, Our blog is Millennial Falcon WordPress. Nope. No, it's not. It's millennialfalconpodcast.wordpress.com. You can listen to us on SoundCloud and rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play. And where could they find you guys on the internet? You can find me at htranbui on Twitter. You can find me at Anya Crittenton on Twitter. And you can find me at Willoughby Dobbs on Twitter. All right. Thanks for joining us, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.